<laughs> so uh, today we're going to close out our series in uh, the book of Isaiah. And I don't know, to me, it feels like we're just getting started. Uh, maybe, you know, six weeks is not exactly a short series, but it's just like we feel like we're barely skimming the surface of Isaiah. And so, you know, I'm sure at some point in the future, we'll have Isaiah volume two, volume three, volume, you know, 20 or whatever. But um, today we're going to close this you know, these, these opening chapters out. And I think something that we have seen very clearly, even in just these opening chapters of Isaiah, is this running theme of God's judgment and hope, right? Judgment and hope. And, and something that God has made very, very clear in these opening chapters is that he is just very displeased with his people, Israel, right? Very, and it, it's more than just being displeased. He's He's angry. He's outraged with them. He's even disgusted with them. Right? He uses very, very strong language. And he talks about how you know, he's, he's outraged because he sees that they ignore injustice and they ignore the oppressed right? and the suffering around them. But even more than just being apathetic to the injustice that they see, really, I think what he's saying is that a lot of times they themselves were the source of that injustice and the source of that oppression. And, uh, you know, and the reason why that happened was because they had adopted a lot of the idolatry, the, the greed, the materialism, uh, and just the immorality of the, the nations around them. Right? And you know, I think you can kind of bet your money that wherever you find greed and materialism, uh, injustice and injustice uh, and oppression are not far behind. Right? And so, you know, you know, he, God, he, he set out Israel to be a holy nation, right? He set them apart to be his people, to be a nation of priests, to, to be a light and represent him to the nations, to draw the nations to God, right? But really what ended up happening was they became just like everyone else. And so basically God here in Isaiah, he speaks through Isaiah and he says, I've gotten to the point where I can't even... I can't stand to watch another one of your worship services. Like, the, your offerings, your songs, they, they annoy me, even. And he says that when you stand and pray, I'm not even listening. I'm not listening to you guys anymore. So I'm turning my face away from you. I don't know, have you guys ever been so angry at somebody that you couldn't even look at them? Right? He says, I'm turning my face away from you, and my judgment is going to come. Right, so really heavy stuff, right? Isaiah, God doesn't hold back in Isaiah. Really, really heavy, heavy stuff. But what we also see in the book of Isaiah, even in just the few chapters that we've, we've gone through, is not only does God make it very, very clear just how outraged and just his burning anger against Israel, but he also makes very clear that he is committed to Israel and he's committed to them because he loves them. Right, that that's also very clear in the book of Isaiah, that you know, God's intention is not to destroy them forever, right? but that God's intention actually is to restore them, right? to restore them to who he created them to be and, and really to, to save them from themselves. Right? And so this is kind of the dynamic that we see in the book of Isaiah, and it's just back and forth, back and forth from judgment to hope, judgment to hope. And it, just, it, it flips back and forth so quickly sometimes, it's almost just like, you know, like, give you whiplash, like it's almost schizophrenic the way that it flips back and forth between hope and judgment, hope and judgment, hope and judgment. It's almost like, ah, Isaiah, can you like organize your thoughts a little bit better? You know, it's just like too, it's too much back and forth. It's too much back and forth. And so here in these closing chapters that we're going to go over in this series, chapter seven through nine, 
Um, what we see is that as you get further in the book of Isaiah, uh, God gives more and more details about the coming judgment, what this coming judgment is going to look like. But also, as you go further and further, he also gives more and more detail about what this hope is going to look like. And so I'll tell you that the message that I was planning on giving today was very different, actually. It was, I was planning on going really in-depth into like all the ways in which Israel was like not following God and not trusting him and all the mistakes they were making, going really deep into that. But I kind of felt like God was nudging me in a different direction. You know, that actually chapters 7 through 9 are known by some as the book of Emmanuel, right? which, you, which should, Emmanuel should seem familiar to you guys from like Christmas, right? And so chapters 7 through 9 are, are really kind of this, this book that highlights this, this Emmanuel figure that's going to come in the future. And, and so I really felt like God was nudging me like, hey, you know what? Why don't you just talk about me today, <laughs> right? So, and so if it's okay with you guys, I'm just going to talk about Jesus today. I just kind of want to brag on Jesus today. And actually, Rand told me that that last song that we sang, Jesus Be the Center, was also a last-minute change. And so I, th I feel like that's like confirmation like that today, if it's okay, okay with you guys, we're just going to talk about Jesus, right? And how this book, which if you really think about it, Isaiah is writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And just how this, this biography of Jesus, the Messiah, begins to unfold in the book of Isaiah. It's, I think, I think it's, it's really cool, something that we can spend our time on. Okay, so with that being said, that was a very long intro, intro but uh, let's open up, and we're going to go just take snippets out of each of these chapters. So the first verse that we're going to look at is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Okay, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That's going to be a very familiar verse, right? But Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. So this is a very familiar verse. We, we read this during Christmas all the time. But it says here that, that God was going to give his people a sign. He was going to give them a sign of, of hope. And the, the sign is that a virgin will give birth to a son. Now, actually, interestingly enough, when you actually look at the, the Hebrew, uh, it's, the word is not literally virgin. Okay, the, the word is not literally virgin, but it's, it's kind of more of a, a general word that just means like young girl, or it can mean like an unmarried uh, young woman, right? So for instance, like that word is used in the story in Genesis where uh, Abraham's servant is praying, asking, uh, asking God to send him a, a, a young girl, an unmarried woman to marry uh, Isaac, right? And so it, it, it doesn't explain explicitly mean virgin, but it's somewhat uh, assumed or implied that it's a, a young woman who uh, is of marrying age, who, who, who is not married, right? And so a, a young woman will give birth to a son, and you will name him Emmanuel, which everybody, I think, here probably knows what it means, Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? And so he says that this will serve as a sign, right? It'll be a, a serve as a sign. And so the, I guess the question is like, what what is this sign? Like, how does this serve as some sort of sign of God's, God's hope? And I, I think the sign is because, you know, we're not spending time on it, but when you look at what's going on in the rest of chapter 7, you have sort of this contrast and this juxtaposition where, where God is kind of warning them of, of the judgment that's coming, and he's, he's, he's imploring Israel to trust him. But they are rather turning to their own devices. They're, they're relying on you know, political maneuvering. They're relying on their strategy, military might, things like that. Right? And so you have this juxtaposition of 
Israel, and actually they even are turning to a foreign power, a foreign king to protect them, right? So you have this juxtaposition of Israel kind of turning to their military might and their strategy and to foreign powers, and God, his means are working through a, a young child, right? The, the birth of an innocent and, and helpless baby. And so this, the sign that he's giving him really is, is this promise. It really goes back to the promise that God made to David, right? That, that one day this king was going to come in the line of David who would reign forever and who would establish this eternal kingdom, right? And so he's basically saying, I know that I've, I've, I've come on you pretty hard, and I know that um, this, I've told you this judgment is coming, but that doesn't mean that the promise is broken. Right? That doesn't mean that I've given up on you, but th this promise that I made way back to David, th that promise is still in effect, and, and this, this king is still going to come one day. Okay? So that's the sign of Emmanuel. Now when we go to chapter 8, in chapter 8, verses 14 through 15, we get a little bit more information about this child, this, this, this Emmanuel. It says, he will be a holy place, for both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. So we get a little bit more information about this, 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 this child who is assigned, this, this Emmanuel. And it says that uh, he will be a sanctuary. Right? He, will, he will become a sanctuary, which basically just means that he will be a refuge for people. He will, he will be salvation for people. But it also, already hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever comes, it already alludes to the fact that um, he's going to be rejected, right? that, that he isn't going to be received as good news by his people, but in fact they are going to reject him that they are going to be offended by him, and he's going to actually cause many of his own people to stumble and fall and be destroyed and be ensnared, right? And it, and it really just connects, like I, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you know, it talks about how Jesus, you know, it says, Jesus, our Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and something, <laughs> wisdom of God, <laughs> right? Is, is there one more after that? No, okay. So it basically just makes that connection that Jesus, you know, he is, he has become like this, this stumbling block to the Jews, right? And, and to the Greeks as well. And so, you know, we, we have this kind of, just again, just further unveiling biography of, of kind of this, this child, this Emmanuel. But really the most revealing passage is chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So that's the biggest chunk that we're going to read. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And this really is the most revealing and, and gives us kind of the most details about this Emmanuel and his identity. It's really one of the probably the earth-shattering passages, I think, in, in the early part of Isaiah. So let's go ahead and read through that. It's a little bit longer chunk, but um, let's go ahead and read that. So chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nation by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. 
On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from, the time on, from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Boom, right? Like just, this is like the epic, one of the epic passages in Isaiah. And actually, there's so many more epic passages in Isaiah, but this is one of just the epic passages in Isaiah. It says that, you know, he will honor Galilee of the nations, and we know that Jesus, he came from Galilee. And actually, in the Gospels, it records that when, when people heard that this new prophet that everybody's talking about, Jesus, was from Galilee, they said, uh, can anything good come from Galilee? It kind of seems like it was a slogan, actually, back in those days. Like, can anything good come from Galilee? So you get the impression that Galilee was like the Jersey Shore of like the ancient world or something like that. Can anything good come from Galilee? But it's interesting because historically when judgment fell on Israel in Isaiah's time, when Assyria came, the, the, the two lands that were hit first and hit the hardest were Zebulun and Naphtali. And then he says that, you know, the, this great light this great hope that God has promised when it dawns, when it comes, it comes through those two places, kind of like that place that was that, that fell first and fell the hardest. And it says, for to us a child is born, a son is given. Again, connecting to this, this promised child, this Emmanuel. It says, the government will be on his shoulders. So this is a, a ruler. This is a king. But the critical line, it says, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, right, boom. I mean, I, I think this was mysterious. Time, you can't deny, anybody reading this can't deny the implications of it, right? Wonderful counselor, and the word wonderful here is often used in, in, in a sense of like supernatural, right? That otherworldly, right? That he has a supernatural wisdom Super, an otherworldly kind of insight and wisdom. Mighty God, I mean, you, you don't need any definition of that. Everlasting Father, right? That this child, this king that is coming, he's, he's more than just a king. Right? He's more than a king. And so, you know, when you, when you read this passage, like I think before when it says, you know, this, this child would be born and he will be called Emmanuel, I mean, people all, all the time have names that mean something like about God, right? Like you have a name and it means, you know, God is, God is great or, or something like that. But I think when we get to this passage, it's like, oh, that's not a name that's just talking about God, right? Now you're starting to see like, hmm, there's something about this child that God with us, there, there's actually a literalness to, to this about this, this king that is coming. It says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, right? He's called the Prince of Peace. Like there's, there's a sense of like, not just peace, but ultimate peace, eschatological peace, if you want a big word. 
right? Final, lasting, uh, a, a utopian kind of vision of true peace, of shalom, the kind of shalom that existed at Genesis when, when God created everything and it was very good, that kind of shalom, that there's a return to that in this king's rule. It says he will reign on David's throne from that time on forever. So there's no doubt that this figure that God is talking about is that promised descendant of David who will reign. It says, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness, that the character of this kingdom is going to be justice, righteousness, shalom, unlike Israel who ignores injustice and oppression, that when this king comes, he's going to establish true justice uh, eternally, true shalom. It kind of reminds you of the chapter two in that vision when uh, Pastor Vanessa preached, right, from chapter two, where it talks about how, you know, this, this kingdom of God will be established on earth and all the nations of the earth start gathering to Israel. They, they stream to Israel wanting to learn about their God and wanting to serve their God, right? And, and we get this greater kind of vision of that kingdom that it's centered around this, this king, this king called Emmanuel, God with us. And it says, lastly, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, which I had no idea what that meant. So I had to like kind of look into it, like, what does it mean? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And basically what it means is God will do this himself. And so it's kind of like this, like, I don't know if you've ever gone to a restaurant and you had a problem, right? And you're like, can I speak to the manager? I don't know if you guys have ever had that situation escalated it to that point. But it's kind of like when the manager comes out and says, okay, I will take care of this myself. Don't you worry. I will take, I will, myself, I will personally make sure that we make this right, right? And it's kind of that same sense, like the, the zeal of the Lord will do this, is I myself with my own hand will do this, will accomplish this, right? I'm not trusting this to anybody else. I myself will do it with my own hand, right? And so, you know, you really get this, this unfolding biography of, of this, this Messiah, right? This, this Savior, this, this King, that it really is God himself coming to accomplish these things. And it's just amazing that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, and you already see his biography beginning to unfold way back here in the book of Isaiah. You know, it's, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but have you noticed that we as a people sort of have this, uh, I don't know, I guess you could say obsession with messiah stories have you noticed that like i mean the biggest movie franchises are like marvel and dc kind of I, i'm a dc person but anyway i digress right but we we have but even outside of marvel and dc and superhero movies like we're just obsessed with these messiah stories like these these gods among us right these savior stories of somebody who comes and this chosen one or whatever that comes it's just all over our pop culture and it's not just us, right? It's all over everybody's culture. And you go back in time and you have all these stories. Like, it's just, there's this weird fascination within us of these, just kind of these hero, savior, chosen one type of, of plot lines and stories. These, these gods who are among us, who can save us, who, can, who, who are powerful enough to save us. Like there's this, this fixation or yearning. And, you know, it could just be a coincidence. I mean... Maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe it's just our fantasy, but maybe it's also, maybe it's a hint, right? A, a whisper of something that maybe we all know subconsciously and, and secretly long for that just always seeping out of us, right? 
no matter what culture, no matter what time you go to, it, this sub subconscious secret longing for a savior, a messiah to come and save us, like it's, it's, it's always just kind of leaking out of us, right? And we see it all over our culture and other cultures. And so, you know, I think this, this story here, I mean, this, this is the messiah story, right? This, this is the hero story, the savior story that perhaps we have always been um, throughout history, throughout all of hu human history, uh, secretly, maybe even subconsciously longing for. Now, here's a question. I mean, I don't want it to be all just uh, too easy, but uh, some of you guys might have the question, you know, if Jesus really cares so much about injustice, like, like it says, if Jesus really cares so much about injustice and oppression and suffering, why isn't he doing more about it, right? Why, why, why is this stuff still happening? Why doesn't he just put an end to it? Right? Like I know for me, if I cared about oppression and suffering and injustice and I had the power to do something about it, I would do something about it. I would put an end to it, right? But why doesn't Jesus? And I don't know if any of you guys have that thought uh, or have ever kind of thought that. And I think one of the, the issues here that maybe sometimes we fail to recognize is that uh, we tend to think of evil and injustice as sort of this, this thing outside of ourselves, right? It's this, it's this thing out there, that this bad thing out there in the world that's happening. And why doesn't God do something about it? Right? Why does he let this bad thing, this, this thing called evil, this thing called injustice, why does he keep letting this thing keep happening? But I think that the, the part where we sometimes we fail to, to recognize is that the truth is that we people are the source of evil and injustice and suffering in the world. Right? That's, that's the disconnect, I think, sometimes in our minds. That there's no talking about doing something about the evil problem without talking about doing something about the people problem. Right? That those come hand in hand. Right? Because we are the source of evil, and we are the source of injustice and suffering in the world. And so I guess the kind of the question is, you know, how do you eliminate injustice and evil and suffering in the world without eliminating all the people? That's kind of God's dilemma. What do you do when the people that you desperately, desperately want to save from suffering are also the sources and the perpetrators of that suffering? Right? And so I think that's, that's the difficulty, that's the complication that sometimes we're a little bit disconnected from in our minds. And in fact, the only way to restore a broken world is to first restore the broken people and our broken hearts, who are the source that drives the cycle of suffering, that God needs to get to that source. Which is why you know, we, we have the cross. Right? The, the purpose and the perfection of Jesus dying on the cross, Emmanuel, God with us, right? that he is one of us. Right? He's, he's this God-man. He's, he's one of us. He is a man. He, he can represent us, yet he, he's, he's more than that. He's, he's God. He's, he's above our disorder so that he can actually serve as a proper sacrifice on our behalf, and he can rise above our dysfunction. You know, rather than simply you know, God resigning to cast us away like a diseased animal or something like that, a rotten piece of meat. He chose to be wounded for our transgressions, pierced for our iniquities. You know, before the government rests 
on Jesus' shoulders. First, the weight of our sins rested on his shoulders as he was nailed and hung from a cross. Why? So that forgiveness could be offered. Right? That before we can solve the problem of injustice and suffering out there, we ha he has to address the problem and the source of that suffering and injustice in here. Right? And, and Jesus dying on the cross is what addresses that, so that forgiveness could be offered. Justice and mercy perfectly satisfied on the cross, the perfect resolution to his dilemma. And now God in good conscience and perfect righteousness can forgive and offer us new hearts, a new spirit. He makes us a new creation, new life to all those who come. And you know, this is a classic verse, but I just feel like we probably haven't read this in a long time. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, right? That, that he's, he's making us new. And what was broken in us, he's, he's fixing because he died on that cross. And so, you know, we, we, we have this story, this, this promise of the Messiah, Emmanuel, son of God, we're almost done. Just stick with me for a couple more minutes. This, God, man, it, it's just, this story is, I mean, it seems impossible, right? This God who became a man. It just seems like this impossible story that doesn't make any sense. Yet, the problem of humanity, right? Like, who can save us? Who can stand for us? Like, it's kind of like when you have a box full of, of parts with all, that all have the same defect, right? You need something outside of that defect, right, to, to fix the problem, right? And you know, God becoming a man, it doesn't make any sense, yet in a way it's, it's the only thing that could make sense, right? That he, he's like us, he's a man so he can represent us, yet he's, he's more than just a man, he's God, so that he can rise above, you know, that, the, the, the plague of sin and death in us. And, you know, how could we have any confidence in yet another flawed king? Right? I think when we hear a king who's going to come and rule, right, I think we're, we're skeptical, with justifiably skeptical. Like, how do we know that this isn't just going to be another flawed king, another flawed hero who's going, who's going to fall prey you know, to their, their own lust and their own weaknesses? And we fall prey to a king who will fail us or use us or abandon us. And again, Emmanuel, God with us. It, it doesn't make any sense, but at the same time, it, it's almost the only thing that could make sense. Right? How, can, how are we going to put our trust in somebody and follow them you know, to, to know that they're not going to be just another failed king? Well, maybe if God himself comes to rule. You know, a couple weeks ago, we, we sang this song, and I don't actually know how the song goes, but so something like, is anyone worthy? Right? Is anyone worthy? You know, is he worthy? And at the end, it says he is, right? That, you know, whenever I have any doubts about, you know, you know, I don't understand why God always does what he does, why he shows up so strong sometimes, and sometimes it just seems like he's, he's kicking back and, and hanging back, or why or how he does all the things that he does. But if I, if I ever have doubts, I always return to the cross. I always return to the cross, and that tells me everything that I need to know about who he is 
what's in his heart, his intention towards us, and I know that he's worthy. And so hopefully, I don't know, like maybe this is something that we haven't heard in a while uh, that, that we, we need to talk about more, but you know, if you ever have any doubts about you know, what his heart is and what his intention is towards us and towards you, you know, return to the cross, look at the cross, and you will know that he is worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we just um, come before you and we thank you for just this, this short series in the book of Isaiah and just all of the warnings that we've gotten because, you know, just as Israel, who was called by your name and called by your promises, was able to stray and drift from the vision and the mission that you gave him, we can just as easily stray. We can just as easily become apathetic to the injustice and the oppression and the suffering around us. And we can just as easily even become oftentimes sources of that suffering and injustice. So Lord, help us to heed those warnings. But also, Lord, we thank you for your promises of hope. And Lord, we thank you that our, our hope is not built on you know, some group of people, some institution, some some system of government, but our, our hope is built on you, the King. And that you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy to be trusted because you are Emmanuel, God with us. That you are like us and you can represent us and you can understand us because you are fully human, but at the same time, you are God. And you, can, you are able to rise above our human weakness and lead us into your kingdom. And so, Lord, uh, we, thank, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for that word, Jay. Um, yeah, Jay was speaking. I think one of the things that um, one of the things that really stood out was he was talking about how um, the sin problem, it's, it's a people problem. And when we talk about people problem, we're talking about a me problem, a you problem. Um, I don't know how that jives with some of y'all. <laughs> um, but there's a reality there that we all, we all need to face, and um, that's been resolved in Jesus, right? But, but the tension of it is that, like, there's an aspect of it that, yeah, like, there's this personal thing that, yeah, we, 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 gotta, we worked it out with God on a certain level, but there's an ongoing thing that we need to continue to work out with in our relationship with God. And, um, you know, for example, I think about what's been happening um, in Israel and the conflict between Israel and Palestine this whole week. And a lot of, like, the narrative out there is this guy's problem, this person's problem, this, their problem, that problem. And everyone's pointing at each other's problem. And, like, I'm, like, and it's, it's getting me all riled up, you know what I mean? And, and for, rightfully so. But I think a lot of the times, it, all that kind of narrative and stuff, it, sometimes I feel like I like to read it because it makes me not think about my own problem. And it makes me not think about my own sin issue. Um, same thing with like the issue of like racism and all that, you know, just, it makes me think about their problem and not mine. And um, a song that's been, um, that um, I was reminded of while Jay was speaking was, it's a song called The Medicine by um, Common Hymnal. And um, it's, uh, it's been speaking um, 
it's been resonating in me uh, a lot later, lately, and I'll, I'll read the lyrics for us as we prepare our hearts and our minds for to receive the communion. Um, and I, pr and the way that the song ends, the lyrics that the song ends with, I pray that those words be the posture in which we enter into the communion table. And it starts off like this, yeah. And as as, as you're doing that, feel free to get your um, uh, communion cups. That's, I should have said that beforehand. <laughs> um, but it, it starts off like this. Um, there's a sickness here that threatens to divide us, and we're all afraid to say its name out loud. But Lord, I know that you can heal us from this virus, so we need you. We need you right now. There's a darkness here that's dangerous and aggressive and is getting harder every day to shake its power. But Lord, I know that you can free us from oppression. So we need you. We need you right now. Because I don't know what to do. So we turn our eyes to you. We ran out of words to say, but if you come and have your way, you can save us from ourselves before our wounds hurt someone else. We need you now. What, what does it mean to have compassion for another? How can I claim to love a God I cannot see if I can't find the will to harm and kill my brother because he neglected to look like me? I could speak the words of men and song of angels. I could give all my possessions to the poor. But if your love can't move the mountains of my hatred, somehow I missed you and I need you so much more. Because we don't know what to do. So we turn our eyes to you. We ran out of words to say. But if you come and have your way, you can save us from ourselves before our wounds hurt someone else. We need you now. 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 We need your healing. We need your healing. We need your healing. We need your presence. We need your presence. We need your presence. Lord, we need your presence. So in light of that, let's take the communion elements and if you can, Peel this top layer off. And let's take this wafer. And this wafer is a reminder of the body that was broken by God. And as we hold this up, hold this in our hand, we remember that this bread is made from many grains, from many fields, yet it was formed into a single loaf in the same way. We are from many cultures, from many places, but we are one body. The communion is a reminder that the body of Christ was broken so that we will be made one in Him. The body of Christ broken for you. And let's respond with the body of Christ broken for me. And if you can, take this top plastic layer off.
And as we hold this in our hand, let's remember that the juice of this cup contains many vines, made by many hands, yet it pours freely. In the same way, let us pour ourselves freely, just as Christ modeled for us. May we be generous givers of our grace, mercy, blessings, and if I can add, forgiveness, kindness, compassion, and empathy to each other and to all. The cup of Christ poured out for you, and let's respond with the cup of Christ poured out for me. And church family, as we reflect upon the elements, let's read this prompt together. Though we partake now from a distance, we long for the day to partake together in person. And though we partake now our partial satisfaction, we long for the full feast at the eternal table in the presence of God. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Um, we remind ourselves of the centrality of um, what that means for us, for what that means for our faith. We, I repent. I repent of the ways that I've been distracted from Jesus. And so we go back to you. We, I, I, I go back to you. And I, and I confess my need for you again and again and again and again. Yeah, and we recognize that, yeah, there's definitely a lot of brokenness in this world. There's a lot of hurt in this world. There's a lot of things that make us mad and frustrated and angers us. A lot of injustices and a lot of inequality and all that stuff, God. Um, I pray that that would not be a distraction from us. Or that would even further drive us to your feet, Jesus. And that would be the exact thing that we cast our cares upon you. And as we seek your care upon us in the world that we live in today. Father, as we pursue this, as we live in this dynamic, we pray that it would mold us more and more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We humbly ask that today that you would do a work through your Spirit uh, to mold us and shape us to find more peace, more hope in you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.